Buenos días. Good. Spanish 101, pass. <laughs> Today we are continuing studying the scriptures in the book of James. And the section that we're going to study today is James 4, verses 1 to 12. Here, James is challenging us to examine our motives, to examine our hearts, and remind us of the destructive nature of conflict within the body of Christ, the church. So as we dive into these passages, let me... Let me encourage you to be ready to see yourself here in the scripture. Don't think about, oh, this is a good sermon for so-and-so. For now, at this moment, I will ask you, put, you, sir, put yourself in the scriptures. Is the Lord speaking to one, each one of us? All of us, in some ways, have experienced any type of conflict. From... Uh, a dispute with your spouse, to a disagreement with a colleague, or an argument with a friend, conflict is in every day of our lives. As a matter of fact, having a contentious nature is not a new problem. It happens from the beginning of the world. Conflicts happen from the original family place on the Garden of Eden. Remember? Adam and Eve, remember the two sons that they have, Cain and Abel? The son of these first parents on earth, they were having an argument, a conflict. Cain was jealous because God saw the offering that Abel was presenting with gladness and rejected his. Because God saw the intention of his heart. But from that moment on, Starting in that field with Cain and Abel, through this day, we are experiencing conflicts, problems, fights, wars. Human history is paved in many ways by rocky paths of conflicts, more even than the accomplishments that we can see. And nowhere this can be so real as what happened in the body of Christ, the church. I read that one of the difference between horses and donkeys shows up in the way that they fight. For instance, when horses confront the enemy, say a pack of wolves, they fight each other and kick the enemy. But when donkeys confront the enemy, they face the enemy and kick each other. <laughs> For some reason, the church at times tend to behave more like donkeys than the horses. We have a, a strange ability to turn to each other when the pressure is on. That's probably why some, someone says, very wisely, to dwell above with saints we love, that will be eternal glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Unfortunately, when conflict occurs among believers, 
is especially painful because it damages the unity within the body of Christ. It hurts us, all of us, and also damages the credibility of the gospel of Christ. In the first century, they saw the Christians and they exclaim it. They say, look how they love each other. In the 21st century, they see the Christians and say, look how they hate each other. A lot of things have happened since then. And if we add the polarization that we have in this country with politics and everything, you see that more evident than ever among the Christian family. So conflicts within the church, and this is the main idea of this sermon, conflicts within the church stem from our own selfish desires and motives and true humility and submission to God's will are the keys to overcome them. True humility and submission to God's will are the keys to overcome the conflicts. James has been telling us a lot about the inconsistency of our hearts, saying that with the same mouth that we glorify God and we worship God, with the same mouth we curse those who bear the image of God by our comments, by our criticism. James has been talking about the fact that our words should carry some kind of weight in which we need to do as we say. We need to make our words be a reality in the way that we act. He has been talking about the wisdom that we need to ask for God. And he compared, in some ways, he contrasts the two wisdoms, the divine wisdom with the earthly or worldly wisdom, the human wisdom. He mentioned to us that the worldly wisdom, which is earthly and spiritual and demonic, lead us to envy and selfish ambition. On the other hand, divine wisdom produces virtues to make us peace-loving, peacemakers, and promote unity within the body of Christ. That's what the wisdom from above can produce in the believer. In today's message, as we open the chapter 4 of the letter of James, James is challenging us to examine our hearts, to examine our motivation before God, and to resist the temptation to love the world more than God. And to refrain from judging and speaking evil toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you open your Bibles in James chapter 4, we will learn that the key is submission. Submitting ourselves to God. Seek to align our desires to his desires. To submit our will to his will. So we can experience the unity that, that he prayed, Jesus prayed before God for all of us. That they can become one as you and I are one so the world can believe that you have sent me. The answer to that prayer of Jesus in John 17 is when you and I learn how to live together in harmony. United as one. Remember Psalm 133? How great, how good it is 
when brothers and sisters are together in harmony? Is that the way that we're portraying the way that we live as Christians? So here James will break this passage in three ways. And this is the three things that I want you to keep in mind. First, he's going to show us what is the cause of the conflicts, the root cause of the conflicts. Those are going to be the first five verses. Then he's going to tell us what would be the solution, what would be the, the cure for the conflicts that we have from 5 to 10. And finally, what would be the appropriate attitude when we are in a conflict? The last two verses, 11 and 12. So open your Bibles and let's see the first one, the cause of our conflicts. What is the cause of our conflicts? And here, James is starting this chapter with a practical problem that his readers in the first century were facing. Look what verse 1 says. What, what is causing the, the quarrels and fights among you? Let me, let me stop there for a moment. Throughout this letter, he addresses Jewish Christians. It's important that you understand this is among you are Christians, are Jewish Christians, people who already were believers. They were saved. They trusted Christ. They were born again Christians. Although they were Jewish, they were believers. And they were having some problems among themselves. That's why James started this chapter without addressing them like before, Brothers and sisters, dear brothers. No, he went directly to their faces and says, what is wrong with you? What is their problem? Quarrels literally means wars in Greek. Polemoi, we get the word polemic from there. And then he's referring to church disputes here. So we get the, the, the other word is, is, is fights. Literally means battles, makai, referring to, to a minor tension between individuals. So these Christian believers were on an ongoing state of quarreling and exploding on an open conflict. And everybody knew about that. They were not even hiding it. I remember when I became a believer, I told you, in you know, this legalistic church, love the church. That's what I knew about the gospel. But I remember visiting the first church because I was in the second church. The second church was a split for the first one. And figure. So we went to a convention to the first church, and there was a problem in the first church. And in that church, the problem was because a group of families were not happy that a lady who for 20 years decided to purchase Bibles, were, she was selling it at the end of the services. She purchased with her own money, asked permission back in the day to the deacons, and they allowed her. So she was getting Bibles, and she was just selling it to people. Some people get angry and envious, and, and they don't like it, so they went to the next business meeting and they were trying to do something with that lady to take away the business so they can handle the business for her. And that caused a division in the church. But nobody was leaving the church. So you got two, uh, in the middle of the aisle, two sections, and you got the people who were in favor of this young lady, elderly lady, to continue with the business who actually were excommunicated from the church, but they're still there. They didn't have to go to another one. 
And then on the other side, there were the one on favor with the pastor saying, we want this lady to be out. We want to take this business. So the way that the pastor sometimes preaches in front of the congregation was moving the pulpit this way and preaching only to this section all the time. Ignoring that one. Only when he was talking about healings and sinners, he would look this way, and then he would continue preaching. That was the way that they handled conflict back in the day. And I remember, what is this? But that's reality. That's exactly what we are seeing with these believers in the first century. So James, like a good parent, stepping in the middle of the sibling squabble, he's saying... What started all this? Instead of pointing fingers, she did it, he did it. He pointed fingers to them and says, what started all this? And there are at least three things that he identified in the next verse, in this rest of the verse. The first one is selfish desires. The Greek word is Hedon, where we get the word hedonism. Christian hedonism. Verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from all evil desires at work within you? The Greek word for lust and evil desire is that. Hedon, hedonism. Hedonism is the philosophy of seeking pleasure as the chief goal of life. If it feels good, just do it. It doesn't matter if you hurt someone. It doesn't matter if it's right. It just just feels feels good, just do it. That's what hedonism is all about. So when you're living for yourself, it's so easy to become obsessed with your own pleasures. You justify the means. You, You actually, I'm so tired, that's why I'm doing this. You try to convince yourself and others who in some ways are discovering what you're doing, You're just defying your behavior. Christian hedonism is trying to find pleasure in life, not necessarily to know more about God. Remember what the Westminster Confession of Faith says in the first line? The chief goal of of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. I love that. It's a great purpose. We were created to know God and enjoy him forever. But without God, there really is not real pleasure. But if you pursue God, the result will be pleasure, will be happiness. No, you pursue happiness and you will find God. You will find God and the other things will come as a result. So Christian hedonism was one of the causes. Everybody wanted to do their own will. They were trying to build their own kingdom with K. Small caps, not God's kingdom, capital K. They were trying to do whatever they wanted, what they see happening. I mean, as a matter of fact, we all know what is right. We know that we are right. Every time that we have a discussion, an argument, we are trying to win the argument. We don't try to find the solution. By the way, let me give you a free advice for married couples who are having problems. Don't try to win the argument. Try to find the solution because normally what happens is the opposite. When you are having an argument, you try to see who is right. And you know I'm right, right? 
I'm just kidding. <clears throat> the second thing that causes conflicts among Christians is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Man, those words that you have in English, it costs me so much. But I'm getting there. Amen. Thank you, brother. <laughs> you see? Let's continue to pray for that. If we want church harmony, we must ask God, James says. Ask God. God wants us to ask things. He wants us that we can depend on him. But James is telling us here, he's stressing the progression from becoming so hedonistic to becoming people who only pray for the things that we want instead of praying the way that God wants us to pray. Verse 2, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can get it. You can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet, you don't have what you, what you want because you don't ask God for it. You see that? And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you hedonism, pleasure, sinful desires. I believe that we lack a lot of pleasure in our life because we don't really ask God right away. James wisely mentions here the most common problem with our prayers. You know which ones are those problems? Not asking God, meaning we don't pray. Secondly, asking for the wrong motives. Asking for the wrong things. And lastly, asking for the wrong reasons. That's the problem with our prayer life. This should lead us to ourselves to ask you this question. When we do pray, what do we pray for? Do we ask only to satisfy our own desire? Do we seek God's approval? God's approval for what we already, he plans to do or we plan to do? Our prayers will only become powerful when we remove the selfish motives out of it. And the purity of our intentions can be seen in how we treat other people. Certainly, most of us are not guilty of murder. We're not killing anybody, right? I think James is using this as a euphemism, as an exaggeration. But actually, maybe not. Because he probably heard his own brother, Jesus, teaching that even when you're angry, when you have anger toward another person, you are committing Exactly, murder. You are killing him. You are committing a crime. It's here when the real problem starts in our heads. You might say, well, at least I'm not doing it. I'm just thinking about it, but I'm doing it. <laughs> and then we ask the prayer, Lord, can you take them or I can send them to you? <laughs> That's not right. Even though it sounds funny, but it's not right. Others might pray, Please, Lord, eliminate them. I mean, illuminate them. That's, that's not right. It might sound good, but it's not right. So we need to pray according to his will, which is the other aspect. We need to make sure that the way that we're praying coincides with God's will. The purpose of prayer is not to get God to sign up on my plans. The purpose of prayer is to change my mind so I can adapt myself to God's plan. 
We don't pray, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, right? We need to pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. But sometimes we might say it with our lips and we do the first one with our hands. Praying according to God's will. You might like to go fishing and you might like to buy a boat. And you try to convince God that you need a boat. And you say, Lord, give me a boat so maybe I can take the youth group to the lake once in a while. <laughs> you justify your prayer. And you know that probably will happen one every 10 years. But that's how you ask God for things. I don't have anything against people who like boats. I'm just saying that it's so easy for us to pray for our own pleasures. You ask God according to his will. You pray exactly how Jesus prayed when he was in Gethsemane. Lord, if this is for you, can you remove this cup from me? I don't want to drink it. But, but, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. I wish we can learn to pray that way. Every time that we pray for something, whatever, Lord, your will be done according to your will. So when you say a prayer, you should align yourself with the purpose of God. If we learn how to pray, we will have less problems, less conflicts with one another. The third cause of conflict might be worldliness. Worldliness, and it's right there in verses 4 and 5. James is saying, in a very polite way, you adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God? I'm an enemy of God? If I say it again, if you want to be friend of the world, you make yourself enemy of God. Friend of the world means you are becoming carnal Christian. He's addressing Christians as an adulterers. And in the Old Testament, Israel was portrayed as the bride of God. That was the people of God. When the Israelites turned away from God and moved to worship idols, they were accused of adultery. Well, similar imagery is employed by the church in the New Testament. We are called the bride of Christ, and this is a female term, the bride of Christ, nympha. And then the bridegroom, nymphios, is, is a masculine term, and this is Jesus Christ. James is addressing believing audience telling them that they are becoming unfaithful to the Lord who rescued them. What does God get so upset about being unfaithful to him? Because we are filtering with the world, and the world hates him. When we talk about the world, he's not talking about the planet Earth. He's talking about the system of thinking in this world that is, in many ways, headed by Satan himself. That's the way that they think. So the ruler of this world, which is Satan, obviously doesn't like God. And if we try to copy everything that the world is telling us and implementing in our relationship at church, we are becoming worldly Christians trying to implement those things in our midst. And God doesn't like that. That's why James says, you are being unfaithful. Don't you realize you say you love God, but you are doing exactly what those magazines, with those news, what this social media is doing. So you are becoming a hypocrite. If you're going to look for God, obey God. 
And then in verse 5, one of the verses that is so difficult because every commentary has a different thing. So I'm not going to give you my take on that, but at least we can read it and we can, we can understand it. Verse 5, do you think that scriptures have no meaning? It's not mentioning necessarily the scriptures, but something related to the scriptures. They say that God is passionate that the spirit is small as... He has placed within us should be faithful to him. So this is not a quotation from the scripture, but it's a, it's a scriptural theme. There are numerous verses in the Old Testament referring to God as being a jealous God. God even says his name is jealous. God is jealous lover. He longs for the spirit of his people to return to him. Today you have been astray. You are walking away from the Lord. The way back home begins with a humble heart. Now that we identify the causes of conflict, James is telling us what could be the cure of conflict. And two words, two simple words in verse 6. And he gives grace generously. More grace, greater grace, greater grace in some versions of the Bible. Grace is one of those antidotes that can help us to find the cure for the conflicts. The more grace referred here is the additional grace of God that he extends to those who in some ways have been walking away, stepping up from his will, his wayward Christian children. Lost sinners experience God's initial saving grace. This is not saving grace. We are saved by faith through grace. By grace through faith. We are being saved by grace. But this is not the grace that he's talking about. Having become his children, we're still prone to wonder. We're still prone to commit sins. That's why we need his grace every single day. This is a greater grace. So we got great grace when we became a believers, but we are given greater grace so that can woo us back to him when we go astray. Have you ever asked the question, will God take me back after all I've done? Have, am I blowing so badly that he has no more grace for me? Well, the answer to that question, according to James, no matter how great your sin is, God's grace is superabundant. God's grace never runs out. One time I saw this article about a painting that somebody painted from the uh, Niagara Falls, but the author didn't put a title, nothing. So they didn't know what to do with that beautiful painting, beautiful waterfalls. So they decided to, to put a title underneath that painting, and the title was Never Runs Out. And I love the title. Because that's exactly what grace is all about. Never runs out. The greater grace, the one that he's given us more and more, is the grace that we need for the day. This is grace for living, brothers and sisters. This is the grace that he gave us. So here we can learn how to love those who are difficult to be loved. Because grace, by definition, if we can define it, can never be earned, can never be merited, can never be won. So to be able to resolve conflicts, we need to exercise grace. We are ready to accept God's grace to us. That's great grace. 
But we need to be willing to express the greater grace to other believers. And we need to start in the house of the Lord. So it's important to do that. So he's quoting James 3.34 when he is talking about this. Grace first, and then the second word is humility. Humility. As the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is exactly a quote from Proverbs 3.34. God is opposed to the proud believers. The word oppose is a military term that means to battle against. God will battle against those who are prideful, those who are arrogant. When we are involved in a friendship with the world, God wages war to our rebellious selves. So he's not going to be just folding his arm like this and say, well, they will come back. No, he will send everything that is possible to remind us who is in control. This involves divine discipline. And we see it in Hebrews 12. Because he doesn't, he loves us. He, and as a good father that he is for us, he doesn't want his children not to come to him. He, he extends that grace. So on the other hand, humility opens the way for God's grace to flow through our lives. When we are humble, when we humble ourselves, is when we let the grace of God run through us and extend them to others. That's why it's so important. So beginning in verse 7, James is giving us 10 military-like commands. Five different steps that he's recommending us as a cure for us. And he's going to give it to you really quickly. Are you ready? Are you ready? Perfect. I'm so glad you're ready. <laughs> Step one, submit to God. Submit to God. It's not written in the screen, so you can write it in your Bibles. Submit to God. It's right there, verse 7. You can put it next to it. It will be a good Bible study that you're going to do today. Submit to God. So humble yourself before God. The word humble here is hopotazo. It's a, it's, a, it's a Greek word that literally means submit or be subject. It's in the sense of a soldier that is expected to carry out the orders of his commander officer, submission is living a life that says to God, not my will, but your will be done. That's being submissive to God. Submission is not identical to obedience. Don't confuse the two words. Submission involves surrender. The surrender of the will that results in obedience. Have you ever willingly bowed your needs to Christ and Lordship? Is he Christ your Savior? Because when he is your Savior, the next step for you is to follow him as your Lord, to submit to him. Don't be content just to be a saved believer. Need to strive for, to work harder to become a servant of your master and Lord Jesus Christ. We need to do it every time. Have you ever played the game Mercy? We call it vencidas in Spanish. So you got another person, and you clutch your hand with the person, and then, and then some way you, you're just holding it, and the, 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 the game is just, you know, you're going to show your strength, and they're going to try to, to fill you. To do it. And then when you just cannot make it, you just need to shout, mercy, mercy, and then the release. That is exactly the idea here. You're, we're before the Lord, and you need to learn how to claim mercy. Lord, I surrender. I surrender, Lord. I, not my will, your will, Lord. That is exactly the point here. 
we need to submit to him. True freedom is found in submission to Christ. The freedom is not in having your own way, but in yielding to God's way. This means ordering your priorities in harmony with God's priorities. Many times you might think that the order of priorities is God, my family, my church, my work. No, no, no. That's how the world thinks. Your priorities are this. In my life, God is first. In my family, God is first. In my work, God is first. In the church, God is first. That's the right priority. That's what you need to keep in mind. The next step is resist the devil. In the same verse. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't come and do what many of my brothers and sisters from the Pentecostal church does. I resist you, devil. He's not going to be convinced with just saying it that. The way that is here, the word resist means to set oneself against, to oppose. Satan seeks to do four things in the Christian. To deceive, to discourage, to discredit, and to distract. Those are the four things. He's not going to take you to the, the, the hell. He's not going to spook you. He's going to come before you red and with, you know, the pitchfork and no, no. He's going to do four things. Deceive, discourage, discredit, and distract you. Remember, so it's so important. When Jesus was taken to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, we noticed how Luke described it. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. So the temptation that the devil will bring us is not going to happen once. You resist the world today and will come next day or next week, but he will come back with a strong temptation for you. So you need to be ready. You need to be doing this. So it's now clear that we can link 4.6 to 4.7. We cannot resist the devil unless, unless we have first submitted to God. Unless we first meet him. Remember the movie uh, The Lion King? It's a beautiful movie. If you haven't seen it lately, I would recommend it to see you. Remember when the little cow wasn't, you know, the hyenas were coming and, and they were trying to devour him? And he was trying to do, meow, meow. You know, the roar that he was trying to <laughs> make and everybody just laugh like the way that you're laughing right now. <laughs> but then, suddenly, they were kind of a surprise and they run. Why? Because the little cow's father, the lion, was behind him and was roaring. And he was thinking it was because of him, but actually it was his father, the one who was roaring, and they ran afraid, the enemy ran afraid. Well, just make sure that you are okay with your own father in heaven because Satan cannot stand before him. So you're going to roar a little bit? Just make sure that he's running for you. So you need to be okay with God. You need to be submitting to God so you can resist the devil. Number three, draw near to God, verse 4, 8. Come close to God and God will come close to you. In context, why we must, as believers, come closer to the Lord? We must do it because many times we have been stained by sin. We have been walking away from him. And when you are in that stage of sinning, even if you are a believer and you are saved by grace, Remember that you need to come back to him. 
The one who moved was you, not him. So you need to come back to him. When you sin, you move away. Sin, you will keep you apart from him, from, from him. So you need to come to him. And James is telling us here, you need to come to him. Number four, deal with your sin. Wash your hands, your sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. What is exactly saying here, James? He is telling us, if your sin is not causing you pain, then you are not repenting yet. If your sin is not causing you to, to cry, to mourn, it's because you haven't realized that you are apart from God, that you are not walking with him. So James said, remember, come to him, but repent. Wash your hands. Make sure that you are walking accordingly. Many of us as believers, we go every Sunday, we sing the songs, we pray the prayers, but we don't realize that we haven't repented from our sins. And we pretend that the Lord can listen to our prayers, Sure, in a second, he's not going to listen to you because you are right now somebody that he, does, he despised. Unless you repent and come back to him and with your heart repent of this. If what you have done, if that sin that you're committing, if that adultery that you're involved, if that pornography that you're involved, if that laughter, if that gossip that you're involved, any sin that you are involved, if you are not repenting, it is not causing you pain inside, coming to the Lord says, Lord, help me out, and cry before him, something is wrong with us. That's what James is telling us here. So again, it's important that we are making decisions that we're going back. And number five, declare your independence. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. When I read this, I was thinking, that might be a mistake. That, that's not correct. So I changed to a different Bible and I read it in the same situation. How come, if I'm in doing all this, if I humble myself, the Lord will lift me up in honor? That might be wrong. So I went to the original languages and it's right there. Why, why is that? It means really honor, to uplift, to raise high, to make great, to elevate, to dignify, to encourage. That's exactly what God does for us in the way of our spiritual adultery. When we realize, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I'm coming back to you. Please forgive me. And we humble ourselves before him. And this is amazing grace because we don't deserve it. That's why God is doing this for us. How great is the Lord. That's right. Humility begins and ends without submitting to him. Knowing God makes us humble. Knowing ourselves keep us humble. Come back to him. The last two verses, as a summary, I'll give it to you. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Three things. Let's avoid judging and speak evil of one another. Only God can judge. Judging inappropriately, it makes you be more important than your brothers and sisters. So our task is not to judge. Only God can do that. We can help a believer who is committing a sin, we can come humbly with the idea to restore him, but make sure that our logs and our eyes 
are checked first before we try to take the straw in somebody else's eyes. Number two, focusing on loving and serving one another. That's what we need to do. We need to make the law of love, the law, the royal love to be a reality. And the royal law says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's wrong to judge our brothers and sisters in matters that only God can judge. But it's okay if we love them enough so we can bring them back so they can come to the Lord. And lastly, honoring God as the only true judge. We need to come to him. We need to be able to say, Lord, only you are the real judge, the honor judge. You are the only one who can do that. Billy Graham once observed, you know, the Holy Spirit convicts us. God is the one who judges. But the problem, the problem is that Christians can do both. But only God can do that. But to this one, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles from my word, says Isaiah. To that one, I will not despise. So the key is humility. Because of his grace, we are able to submit. As we conclude, we must remember that conflicts and quarrels arise from our selfish motivation. But the solution is to submit ourselves to God, to accept his grace, to be humble. And that will help us give it the strength to submit, to resist, to love one another. As we transition to the Lord's Supper this morning, if you receive one of those caps, have it ready. If you haven't received it, just ask for one. And I will ask one of the one of the deacons to bring me one. I didn't enter to the main door. I came back through the back door. So thank you. Appreciate it. We need to remember about his love and mercy and the way that grace is keeping us. So as we partake this communion, as we are we see these elements, as we see the bread and as we see the 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 cup, the juice. Let's remember the wonderful love that he demonstrated to us on the cross. So while you have having the elements in your hands, I would like to ask God to help us to examine our hearts. So close your eyes unless you are waiting for your cup. Close your eyes and try to think about if any, anything is between you and the Lord at this moment before you take the elements. The Holy Spirit will be so quick to point you some things that are not right before God. And I will ask you that you can confess before the Lord right there where you are and ask God for forgiveness. You are a Christian. You are a believer in Christ. You have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's why you are invited to participate in the communion with him. If you are not a Christian yet, I will ask you for this time to pass the elements, not to partake, because you're not gonna, you're gonna appreciate what this means. This is not transubstantiation. This is just an example of what God did for us. There is nothing magical in the bread that will change by the prayer. It's just a piece of unleavened bread, which is a symbol representing what Christ did on the cross for all of us. Close your eyes, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you with a humble heart. We're grateful for the sacrifice that your son Jesus Christ made on the cross for our sins. As we partake in the bread and the cup, may we remember his love and mercy and commit to living according to your will. Father, forgive us because we have sinned. Please guide us, give us wisdom to follow you faithfully the rest of our lives. And we thank you in Jesus who went to the cross and demonstrated his love for you as he died on the cross for all of us. And it's in his name that we pray. And everybody says amen. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I pass unto you what I received from the Lord. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time that you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Please, with the elements right there where you are, take the bread and eat it. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us on the cross. This cup symbolizes the blood of Christ shed for our forgiveness of our sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. What he made on, for us on the cross, he paid for our sins. We thank you for the forgiveness and grace that he extends to us. As we partake in the bread and the cup, let us remember, Father, that his love and mercy and commitment to a life according to your will be an example for all of us. We give you thanks for Jesus. And in Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's eat. And when you are done, let's drink. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And for the sacrifice that made us, that he made for us on the cross. May this celebration of the Lord's Supper remind us of his love and mercy and inspire us to love and serve one another. May we reflect your grace and love to the world. And may our lives be a testimony of your goodness and faithfulness because of the grace demonstrated for all of us on that cross is that we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody says, 